Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Surprised by Joy by C.S. Lewis Chapter 2, Concentration Camp Epigraph, Arithmetic with Colored Rods From the Times Educational Supplement, November 19, 1954 Clop, 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 clop We are in a four-wheeler rattling over the uneven square sets of the Belfast streets through the damp twilight of a September evening, 1908. My father, my brother, and I. I am going to school for the first time. We are in low spirits. My brother, who has most reason to be so, for he alone knows what we are going to, shows his feelings least. He is already a veteran. I, perhaps, am buoyed up by a little excitement, but very little. The most important fact at the moment is the horrible clothes I have been made to put on. Only this morning, only two hours ago, I was running wild in shorts and blazer and sand shoes. Now I am choking and sweating, itching too, in thick, dark stuff, throttled by an eaten collar, my feet already aching with unaccustomed boots. I am wearing knickerbockers that button at the knee. Every night, for some forty weeks of every year, and for many a year, I am to see the red, smarting imprint of those buttons in my flesh when I undress. Worst of all is the bowler hat, apparently made of iron, which grasps my head. I have read of boys in the same predicament who welcomed such things as signs of growing up. I had no such feeling. Nothing in my experience had ever suggested to me that it was nicer to be a schoolboy than a child, or nicer to be a man than a schoolboy. My brother never talked much about school in the holidays. My father, whom I implicitly believed, represented adult life as one of incessant drudgery, under the continual threat of financial ruin. In this, he did not mean to deceive us. Such was his temperament that when he exclaimed, as he frequently did. There'll soon be nothing for it but the workhouse. He momentarily believed, or at least felt what he said. I took it all literally, and had the gloomiest anticipation of adult life. In the meantime, the putting on of school clothes was, I well knew, the assumption of a prison uniform. We reach the quay and go on board the old Fleetwood boat, after some miserable strolling about the deck, my father bids us goodbye. He is deeply moved. I, alas, am mainly embarrassed and self-conscious. When he has gone ashore, we almost, by comparison, cheer up. My brother begins to show me over the ship and tell me about all the other shipping in sight. He is an experienced traveler and a complete man of the world. A certain agreeable excitement steals over me. I like the reflected port and starboard lights on the oily water, the rattle of winches, the warm smell from the engine-room skylight. We cast off. The black space widens between us and the quay. I feel the throb of screws underneath me. Soon we are dropping down the loch, and there is a taste of salt on one's lips. And that cluster of lights astern receding from us is everything I have known. Later. When we have gone to our bunks, it begins to blow. It is a rough night, and my brother is seasick. I absurdly envy him this accomplishment. 
He is behaving as experienced travelers should. By great efforts, I succeed in vomiting. But it is a poor affair. I was, and am, an obstinately good sailor. No Englishman will be able to understand my first impressions of England. When we disembarked, I suppose at about six next morning, but it seemed to be midnight, I found myself in a world to which I reacted with immediate hatred. The flats of Lancashire in the early morning are in reality a dismal sight. To me, they were like the banks of sticks. The strange English accents with which I was surrounded seemed like the voices of demons. But what was worst was the English landscape from Fleetwood to Euston. Even to my adult eye, that main line still appears to run through the dullest and most unfriendly strip in the island. But to a child who had always lived near the sea and in sight of high ridges, it appeared as I suppose Russia might appear to an English boy. The flatness, the interminableness, the miles and miles of featureless land, shutting one in from the sea, imprisoning, suffocating. Everything was wrong. Wooden fences instead of stone walls and hedges. Red brick farmhouses instead of white cottages. The fields too big. Haystacks the wrong shape. Well does the Calavella say that in the stranger's house the floor is full of knots. I have made up the quarrel since. But at that moment I conceived a hatred for England, which took many years to heal. Our destination was the little town of let us call it Belzen, in Hertfordshire. Green Hertfordshire, Lamb calls it, but it was not green to a boy bred in County Down. It was flat Hertfordshire, flinty Hertfordshire, Hertfordshire of the yellow soil. There is the same difference between the climate of Ireland and of England as between that of England and the continent. There was far more weather at Belzen than I had ever met before. There I first knew bitter frost and stinging fog, sweltering heat and thunderstorms on the great scale. There, through the curtainless dormitory windows, I first came to know the ghastly beauty of the full moon. The school, as I first knew it, consisted of some eight or nine boarders and about as many day boys. Organized games, except for endless rounders in the flinty playground, had long been moribund, and were finally abandoned not very long after my arrival. There was no bathing except one's weekly bath in the bathroom. I was already doing Latin exercises, as taught by my mother, when I went there in 1908, and I was still doing Latin exercises when I left there in 1910. I had never got in sight of a Roman author. The only stimulating element in the teaching consisted of a few well-used canes, which hung on the green iron chimney-piece of the single schoolroom. The teaching staff consisted of the headmaster and proprietor. We called him Oli, his grown-up son, Wee-Wee, and an usher. The ushers succeeded one another with great rapidity. One lasted for less than a week. Another was dismissed in the presence of the boys, with a rider from Oli to the effect that if he were not in holy orders, he would kick him downstairs. This curious scene took place in the dormitory, though I cannot remember why. All these ushers, except the one who stayed less than a week, were obviously as much in awe of Oldie as we. But there came a time when there were no more ushers, and Oldie's youngest daughter taught the junior pupils. By that time there were only five boarders, 
and Oli finally gave up his school and sought a cure of souls. I was one of the last survivors, and left the ship only when she went down under us. Oli lived in a solitude of power, like a sea captain in the days of sail. No man or woman in that house spoke to him as an equal. No one except Wee Wee initiated conversation with him at all. At mealtimes, we boys had a glimpse of his family life. His son sat on his right hand. They, too, had separate food. His wife and three grown-up daughters, silent. The usher, silent. And the boys, silent, munched their inferior messes. His wife, though I think she never addressed Oldie, was allowed to make something of a reply to him. The girls, three tragic figures, dressed summer and winter in the same shabby black, never went beyond an almost whispered, Yes, Papa, or No, Papa, on the rare occasions when they were addressed. Few visitors entered the house. Beer, which Oldie and Wee Wee drank regularly at dinner, was offered to the usher, but he was expected to refuse. The one who accepted got his pint, and was taught his place by being asked a few moments later, in a voice of thunderous irony, "'Perhaps you would like a little more beer, Mr. N?' Mr. N, a man of spirit, replied casually, "'Well, thank you, Mr. C. I think I would.' He was the one who did not stay till the end of his first week, and the rest of that day was a black one for us boys. I myself was rather a pet or mascot of Oldie's, a position which I swear I never sought, and of which the advantages were purely negative.' Even my brother was not one of his favorite victims. For he had his favorite victims, boys who could do nothing right. I have known Oli enter the room after breakfast, cast his eyes round, and remark, Oh, there you are, Reese, you horrid boy. If I'm not too tired, I shall give you a good drubbing this afternoon. He was not angry, nor was he joking. He was a big, bearded man with full lips like an Assyrian king on a monument, immensely strong, physically dirty. Everyone talks of sadism nowadays, but I question whether his cruelty had any erotic element in it. I half divined then, and seem to see clearly now, what all his whipping boys had in common. They were the boys who fell below a certain social status, the boys with vulgar accents, Poor P. Dear, honest, hard-working, friendly, healthily pious P. Was flogged incessantly. I now think, for one offense only, he was the son of a dentist. I have seen Oldie make that child bend down at one end of the schoolroom and then take a run of the room's length at each stroke. But P was the trained sufferer of countless thrashings, and no sound escaped him until, towards the end of the torture, there came a noise quite unlike a human utterance. That peculiar croaking or rattling cry. That, and the gray faces of all the other boys and their death-like stillness, are among the memories I could willingly dispense with. The curious thing is, that despite all this cruelty, we did surprisingly little work. This may have been partly because the cruelty was irrational and unpredictable, but it was partly because of the curious methods employed. Except at geometry, which he really liked, 
it might be said that Oldie did not teach at all. He called his class up and asked questions. When the replies were unsatisfactory, he said in a low, calm voice, Bring me my cane. I see I shall need it. If a boy became confused, Oldie flogged the desk, shouting in a crescendo, Think! 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 Then, as the prelude to execution, he muttered, Come out! Come out! When really angry, he proceeded to antics, worming for wax in his ear with his little finger and babbling, Ay, 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 ay! I have seen him leap up and dance round and round like a performing bear. Meanwhile, almost in whispers, Wee Wee, or the usher, or, later, Oldie's youngest daughter, was questioning us juniors at another desk. Lessons of this sort did not take very long. What was to be done with the boys for the rest of the time? Oldie had decided that they could, with least trouble to himself, be made to do arithmetic. Accordingly, when you entered school at nine o'clock, you took your slate and began doing sums. Presently, you were called up to say a lesson. When that was finished, you went back to your place and did more sums. And so, forever. All the other arts and sciences thus appeared as islands, mostly rocky and dangerous islands, which, like two rich and various gems inlaid, the unadorned bosom of the deep. The deep being a shoreless ocean of arithmetic. At the end of the morning you had to say how many sums you had done, and it was not quite safe to lie. But supervision was slack and very little assistance was given. My brother, I have told you that he was already a man of the world, soon found the proper solution. He announced every morning with perfect truth that he had done five sums. He did not add that they were the same five every day. It would be interesting to know how many thousand times he did them. I must restrain myself. I could continue to describe Oldie for many pages. Some of the worst is unsaid. But perhaps it would be wicked, and it is certainly not obligatory to do so. One good thing I can tell of him. Impelled by conscience, a boy once confessed to him an otherwise undetectable lie. The ogre was touched. He only patted the terrified boy's back and said, Always stick to the truth. I can also say that though he taught geometry cruelly, he taught it well. He forced us to reason and I have been the better for these geometry sessions all my life. For the rest, there is a possible explanation of his behavior which renders it more forgivable. Years after, my brother met a man who had grown up in the house next door to Oldie's school. That man and his family, and, I think, the neighbors in general, believed Oldie to be insane. Perhaps they were right. And if he had fairly recently become so, it would explain a thing which puzzles me. At that school, as I knew it, most boys learned nothing, and no boy learned much. But Oldie could boast an impressive record of scholarships in the past. His school cannot always have been the swindle it was in our time. You may ask how our father came to send us there. Certainly not because he made a careless choice. The surviving correspondence shows that he had considered many other schools before fixing on Oldie's and I know him well enough to be sure that in such a matter he would never have been guided by his first thoughts, which would probably have been right, nor even by his twenty-first, which would at least have been explicable. Beyond doubt, he would have prolonged deliberation till his hundred and first, and they would be infallibly and invincibly wrong. 
This is what always happens to the deliberations of a simple man who thinks he is a subtle one. Like Earl's skeptic in religion, he is always too hard for himself. My father piqued himself on what he called reading between the lines. The obvious meaning of any fact or document was always suspect. The true and inner meaning, invisible to all eyes except his own, was unconsciously created by the restless fertility of his imagination. While he thought he was interpreting Oldie's prospectus, he was really composing a school story in his own mind. And all this, I doubt not, with extreme conscientiousness and even some anguish. It might, perhaps, have been expected that this story of his would presently be blown away by the real story which we had to tell after we had gone to Belzen. But this did not happen. I believe it rarely happens. If the parents in each generation always or often knew what really goes on at their sons' schools, the history of education would be very different. At any rate, my brother and I certainly did not succeed in impressing the truth on our father's mind. For one thing, and this will become clearer in the sequel, he was a man not easily informed. His mind was too active to be an accurate receiver. What he thought he had heard was never exactly what you had said. We did not even try very hard. Like other children, we had no standard of comparison. We supposed the miseries of Belzen to be the common and unavoidable miseries of all schools. Vanity helped to tie our tongues. A boy home from school, especially during that first week when the holidays seems eternal, likes to cut a dash. He would rather represent his master as a buffoon than an ogre. He would hate to be thought a coward and a crybaby. And he cannot paint the true picture of his concentration camp without admitting himself to have been for the last thirteen weeks a pale, quivering, tear-stained, obsequious slave. We all like showing scars received in battle. The wounds of the ergastulum, less. My father must not bear the blame for our wasted and miserable years at Oldies. And now, in Dante's words, to treat of the good that I found there. First, I learned, if not friendship, at least gregariousness. There had been bullying at the school when my brother first went there. I had my brother's protection for my first few terms, after which he left to go to a school we may call Wyvern. But I doubt if it was necessary. During those last declining years of the school, we boarders were too few and too badly treated to do or suffer much in that way. Also, after a certain time, there were no new boys. We had our quarrels, which seemed serious enough at the time, but long before the end we had known one another too long, and suffered too much together not to be, at the least, very old acquaintance. That, I think, is why Belson did me, in the long run, so little harm. Hardly any amount of oppression from above takes the heart out of a boy like oppression from his fellows. We had many pleasant hours alone together, we five remaining boarders. The abandonment of organized games, though a wretched preparation for the public school life to which most of us were destined, was at the time a great blessing. We were sent out for walks alone on half-holidays. We did not do much walking. We bought sweets in drowsy village shops and pottered about on a canal bank, or sat at the brow of a railway cutting watching a tunnel mouth for trains. Hertfordshire came to look less hostile. Our talk was not bound down to the narrow interest which satisfied public school boys. We still had the curiosity of children. I can even remember from those days what must have been the first metaphysical argument I ever took part in. 
We debated whether the future was like a line you can't see, or like a line that is not yet drawn. I have forgotten which side I took, though I know that I took it with great zeal. And, always, there was what Chesterton calls, quote, the slow maturing of old jokes. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>